Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Rick Wagner here on KNZZ KGLN. We're all over western Colorado, eastern Utah at 1192.7. And if you're on KGLN, you're at 980 and 101.3. And, of course, if you're listening on the Internet, we welcome you, too. And uh, you could get our podcast by going to our website, where you can also get a lot of stories and all sorts of things and some stuff even I post at uh, the Rick at uh, com or politicalbiking.com. Either one of those gets you to the same place. And we welcome you and appreciate your listenership and readership and any other ship that you might be wishing to be on. Well, I would like to take a moment to say that we were right about uh, the Hunter Biden plea deal. Remember, we've been talking the last few weeks how suspicious we were that they were going to try and sneak something in so that it would eliminate further prosecution. And my analysis had been that they would try and sneak something in. And this may be because we don't actually see the indictment or I, I haven't read it yet or anything. If they include enough factual situations into this crime that could conceivably be connected to other crimes, but using the same fact situation, if you use enough of the same fact situation and let someone plead guilty to something associated with that, then you can't charge them again with another crime that relies primarily on that fact situation. So I was suspicious that that might go on. It may have to some extent. Uh, Certainly, they were trying to engineer something it looks like. And it sounds to me like this judge, who did a very good job, kind of pulled them out of uh, from under the rug to make them say, what's going on? And if you've read this, remember that what she asked when she looked at the uh, plea agreement was, I keep hearing, this is her saying, I'm paraphrasing her, the defense talking about this is the final chapter in the prosecutions with Hunter Biden. And at the same time, she says, I keep hearing from the prosecutions that they're ongoing investigations and so forth. So is this plea agreement intending to uh, give immunity from further prosecution? And put on the spot like that, the Department of Justice, their prosecutors said, well, no. Uh, that's not it, and if, if that's being interpreted that way, then it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be. In which case, the defense said, well, if that's the situation, then we can just tear this thing up right now. I'm paraphrasing, but there's some of that in there, which I thought was pretty surprising. <laughs> you would have think that this sort of thing, which is very important, would have been maybe hammered out over all of this long time they've had trying to come up with with this agreement. And yet it seemed like that they were on completely different pages. Now, was there something being said during the negotiations, you know, with a wink and a nod about that? You know, well, if you plead to this, I mean, although it doesn't specifically say it, you know, maybe look the other way and uh, or that was their interpretation or who knows. But something uh, triggered all of that. And the judge's questions triggered that. And then also she asked if the prosecution if this plea agreement proposal had, if they'd ever seen anything like it before, and they were having to say no. So it was extremely unique. 
So it fell apart. And he had to enter some kind of plea that day, so he entered a not guilty plea. Now, she's asked him to come back again in 30 days, I think, or August 20th maybe, and uh, see if they've got something new. But there's going to be a lot more scrutiny from her on what's going on since it was obvious that there was not a meeting in the minds here. And part of her job is to make sure that both sides are clear on what the agreement is, that one side isn't, you know, assuming something that's not in there. Uh, you know, she's supposed to make sure that everybody's clear and, I think you're using the word clear, that they are in accordance with this. So that's going to make it a lot more interesting. A lot of people, you know, were not particularly happy to see Hunter roll up in uh, with six SUVs and, you know, there's black SUVs and uh, Secret Service and the whole thing like he was, I don't know, like he was vice president or whatever the case may be. And it seemed a little odd. He is a private citizen. Now, he is also, you know, the uh, the close relative of the commander-in-chief. And there's nothing wrong with having some security around that. There's nut jobs out there all over the place. And no matter what you may think about his <laughs> his lifestyle, uh, he deserves the same level of protection as, you know, someone from the Trump family or someone like that. So that's all fine and good. But I don't think they're getting carted around in six SUVs and so forth, uh, you know, I guess ostensibly to keep the press back. He seems to be getting a lot of pretty uh, pretty up there in the high and the mighty treatment from uh, the Secret Service and others. Uh, the rest of the population now doesn't seem to be able to say anything about that. And you can't ask the president or Karine Jean-Pierre any questions about it because she just says, well, you know, we're following it carefully and the president loves his son, which is all fine. Uh, and But what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, how far does that go? What does it mean? And you know, there's just all this whole thing keeps, keeps unraveling. Now, will it unravel to something significant? Yeah, I just I'm not sure it it, it will. I mean, I, I hate to be the you know sort of the the negative Nelly. I, I do think it will amount to something. Don't get me wrong. And I do think that it's that it's something that is pulling on Biden's coattails pretty hard coming into another election cycle. I mean, if you're a thoughtful Democrat out there and you're tra- thinking, well, how's this candidacy going to go? you got someone that's clearly you know, off kilter with their mental functioning, and they have a lot of family issues. In the past, when we've had family members out there that act up, I mean, you kind of let it go because the way they had been acting up was the sort of thing that every family has, somebody in it that's, you know, a little bit off kilter, as we'd said earlier, uh, and there's not much you can do about it. I mean, we can remember uh, Billy Carter. Remember Billy Carter? Like Billy liked to have a little beer once in a while. Remember, remember Billy Beer? I wonder if uh, you had a six pack of Billy Beer somewhere in the attic, if it'd be worth any money now. But you had Billy Beer, and you know, Nixon had Don Nixon, <laughs> who was kind of you know uh, not not the person you want to have doing your PR for you, and. So a lot of people have family members that become a lot. The spotlight becomes on them because of the relationship to the president. I mean, even even Barack Obama had Malik Obama and truth the other people that uh, the press tried not to talk to very much. But so that's not at all uncommon. But this kind of thing is different because it isn't just Hunter being involved in this stuff. It's this constant nexus of uh, he and his dad. And, And don't forget the rest of his family. 
his aunt and uncle Frankie and his, uh, you know, James Biden. I mean, they're all sort of involved in this. And don't forget the, the money that was sorted through to the grandkid. And I mean, without getting into, you know, a long repetition of that, there's a lot of stuff there that seems, well, I think pretty darn unusual. And obviously, not to go for the hello hanging fruit here, but if this was anything to do with the Trump kids, I mean, we'd be hearing about it on all the channels all the time. As it is now, it's hard to even find it. I mean, if something happens that seems like a pretty big splash and makes some decent news on the conservative sites, I'll, I'll go and try and look on some of the more mainstream left-wing sites. And if it's reported at all, it's pretty far down the line. And it seems pretty vanilla when you uh, get, you know, well, today the plea agreement went south when the judge questioned some things uh, about the plea agreement and what the intent was. And the parties could not agree upon the intent, and so the judge, you know, you can write the same thing and make it seem like, oh, gee, that's too bad. I wish we'd gotten it done today, and not really know anything. And it isn't until somebody else talks to you that you actually know that you don't know anything because there was more information than that. And that's usually the way it goes. It's either no reporting or uh, sort of a glossed-over piece. Uh, and sometimes they go out of their way to talk about it in, in terms of this is just another political hit job and this but i think the smart ones out there smart smart news media keep away from that because what we've discovered we've talked about here a lot over the last few years is that if you just don't talk about it very much just don't let the word get out you can you can make it seem there is kind of a nutty feeling to it like well nobody that's serious about this really is listening to this this is just kind of one of those off-the-wall things that a lot of people are over-hyping. And that's been pretty effective. Hi, folks. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, we're back. Say, this is Rick Wagner again here on Kansas EKGLN and the Internet and other places. I uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that uh, Victor Davis Hanson wrote this week, and I can't really post it because it's on his... Uh, I did post a good, very good article to him about the election. You might want to go to our website and look at... Um, the, uh, you know, the crazy 2024 election stuff, which is really a pretty good article. Everything he writes is pretty good. Uh, what I was going to talk about here in a little bit is something he posts on his website for his uh, you know, subscription service, so I can't really post it. But I'll talk to you guys about, about it and let you know what's going on with it. And leading into that, I wanted to talk about a new story I saw, I don't know, Friday, whenever, Thursday, Friday, I can't remember. Um, there's a Nevada school district, and this just this will lead into VDH's thing that I want to talk about called decivilization. <laughs> what is decivilization? And this was this is the headline. Nevada district, and you can read this on the website at thewickwagnershow.com. Nevada district approves sex ed with phrases boys and people with penis, girls and people with vulva, which I am uncomfortable even saying on the radio. Uh, so, there we go. Uh, Nevada Public School District approved a new sex education curriculum for elementary students. Oh. Following hours of public comment on Tuesday, it will use new phrases to refer to males and females. <sighs> Let's see. Sex education lessons at the Washu County School District, which is where this is at, begin in fourth grade and continue through senior year. So they're going to get a lot of this. There you go. <laughs> The fourth grade draft lesson was entitled Understanding Our Bodies, which specifically used the phrasing body with a penis and body with a vulva, which is odd, to say the very least, without even getting into the other stuff. 
In fourth grade, students will be taught about their bodies, friendships, and puberty. This is from Fox News, by the way. Liking and loving communication, assigned sex at birth, and assigned sex female. Proposed fourth grade draft lesson called Understanding Our Bodies Proofs included the freezing body, as we talked about there. So let me pass on that. <laughs> and some of the other stuff that's going on here. Under the policy, students are allowed to use names, pronouns, restrooms, locker rooms, school facilities, terminology, dress codes, as well as attend physical education classes, intramural sports that correspond to their chosen gender identity. So your chosen gender identity, gender identity. The problem, question I always have, I guess, is what, what signifies your choice? Is it just you saying it? Does one day you put a bow in your hair and, 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 and the next day you wear a baseball cap? I mean, what's the, what are you supposed to do to show your chosen gender identity? I mean, what's, what's the dividing line? What's the line of demarcation? I mean, I thought it used to be, if you wanted to be a transgender person, you took some major steps to go in that direction. So some sort of commitment to purpose. Now it seems like you just have to say it. And that's it. I mean, based on what we just read there, if you say that, I, I guess you have to manifest something. My guess is if you're a teacher and said, well, Joey says that he's a girl today, but he's still dressed uh, exactly like he was yesterday when he said he was a boy, I don't know if I could take that seriously or not. I, I suppose the way things go now, that would mean as the teacher, you probably get in trouble. You know, he's manifested a desire to be treated a different way. So... I guess in class, you'd have to call them by a feminine pronoun. And if they want to use the facilities throughout the building, you know, the lockers, restrooms, the I, apparently also the gym classes, because I think that's mentioned in there, too. Yeah, that they can use the uh, attend physical education classes and intramural sports that correspond with their chosen gender identity. So this is this is happening in fourth through high school in Washoe County School District in Nevada. It seems a little strange. And it's so all-encompassing when you read it. It's just like you show up and here's the deal. Well, Victor Davis Hansen talks about de-civilization in this piece that he's written. And one of the things he's talking about here is that he points out is that California is going to blow up four of its dams because... They want to let the salmon flow through them. And it's a deal they made with one of the Pacific Northwest uh, tribes up there. Now, these dams do provide some hydroelectric power, flood control, and irrigation. I mean, that's the whole thing. You have those things. And as he points out, that might make some sense if California is underpopulated and had a budget surplus and had all kinds of excess water capacity. But they don't have, they don't have any of those things. They're burgeoning with people. I think they're 29, more than 29, probably over $30 billion in a budget deficit. And they claim to be having these uh, droughts. And as we've talked about before, one of the things that goes on in California that w- was genius with them, you know, when they were building these water projects from the 30s up to about the 80s, or early 80, I guess, uh, was that in California, if it's a nice long state, uh, two-thirds of the water, in the state comes from the Sierra Nevada, which is up in the northern part of the state, uh, the northeastern part of the state, where all the snow falls, and down a bit. And 
only one-third of the population lives there. So two-thirds of the population live far away from where two-thirds of the moisture falls. So in order to rectify that, this series of dams and irrigation canals and all this was were put into place by really far-seeing and some brilliant people in California uh, from the 40s on, and well, or from the 30s on. And now they're not only not building any new ones, but they've decided to start getting rid of dams. And they're saying that that they're saying, well, this didn't really provide any more hydroelectric power than maybe for seventy to eighty thousand homes. Well, that seems significant to me. I mean, we already just read stories about how overtaxed the California system is. Is this going to help? They're already buying all sorts of energy from other states, and they're not building a whole lot in the way of infrastructure for that. I don't mean power plants. I mean, you know, I mean just wires and putting up new. Uh, high-tension uh, electrical grid. They're not doing that because it's environmentally a problem. So it, it like, like makes no sense. It, it's, as Hansen likes to say, it's nihilistic. It, it feels like you're just you're trying to do away with yourself. And is it blindness that causes this? Is it the idea that you've had things go well so long that you think that Nothing that you do will ultimately significantly change what's happening? Or is it the fact that the people are purporting to do this feel, and maybe rightly so, believe that they will never feel much effect from this and they can uh, be part of a group of people that, you know, is our virtue signaling and who knows, there may be some underneath some other nefarious purposes for these things. Often there is. Uh, you know, some other alternative problem with that. But let's just say they want to stay in Malibu and say, we should let the salmon run free for the benefit of so-and-so and get rid of those dams, let the, let the rivers flow. Okay, well, there's, there's a lot of places that if you just let the rivers flow the way they used to, you don't have much in the way of agriculture. Now, where I live in Colorado, if you didn't have diversionary water, from the water sources and take them to other places, you wouldn't have much in the way of food growing. Uh, it just wouldn't happen. It's a smaller scale, but California is very much like that. You start letting everything just go back to the rivers, then the whole structure of irrigation is going to change. I mean, you're going to end up like something uh, in, you know, 4,000 B.C. Egypt, where everybody lived pretty close to the Nile so they could get water out of it and have their crops. Uh, you know, large-scale irrigation projects and canals and stuff enable people to spread out, have bigger communities, have more, you know, distance that they can they can live from things and and that they can do different crops and so forth. So this is just so so blind, and you wonder: is there some historical precedent? And I thought about this, where someone has. I've been in dismantling their civilization. I can't think of one. I can I can think of uh, civilizations or cultures that, you know, really were hard to drag forward into modern ideas or different ideas or so forth. And I said I said like something like uh, 18th century Japan. You know that they didn't really move want to move into the direction of the real world. They, you know, didn't want to have uh, firearms and a few things like that. But eventually, you get forced into it. But this uh, willful, you know, just dismantling of some of the fundamental pieces of your civilization, 
Some of it's just ignorance. Some of it is, I don't know. It's sort of like a collective hysteria. And you don't know what's causing it exactly. I mean, you see it all the time. But it's, I think, it's an emotional response to a quasi-religious experience that people have. That they've adopted saving the planet for any kind of religious experience that we would think of as, you know, an average religious experience. And so anything you do that dismantles man's work on the, on the planet, which is in your religious experience for the climate and, you know, the green people, that that's all bad. So anything you can do to change that and dismantle it is somehow a beneficial result. How crazy that sounds. Okay, we're back. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you holding on around the horn there. Rick Wagner here, getting it right uh, on radio at uh, KNZZ, 1192.7, and uh, on the old KGLN at 980 and 101.3, Internet, other places. Of course, the ships at sea that we always try and remember and our, keep them in our thoughts. But uh, I appreciate you guys. And, you know, like we were talking about at the last uh, segment, you know, about the sort of quasi-religious experience that people have substituted for actual connection with the infinite and have become weaponized by it or for it. I guess it depends. It's a chicken and the egg kind of argument. And what it does is it supersedes every other rule. It is become a rule of a a religious figure, climate change, green, all the things that they can, can push it back into. It's a, uh, it started off, I think, in the 60s, really, with the whole Earth Day things. It came out in the 70s, early 70s and everything. And the whole Gaia movement, you know, as though the, you know, the planet is, uh, sort of the Earth Mother, which is a very old religion, by the way, pops up all the time. And they just sort of wove this in a strange, helter-skelter way. And politicians and people who desired power seized upon it as, as a way to draw people along with them. In the same way that a religious movement might, but with an entirely different agenda at the end of it. We're seeing that coming to fruition in these days that we live. And, uh, and I wanted to point out too, as uh, we talked about decivilization a little bit with the uh, piece by Victor Davis Hansen, and I was going to uh, point out, I mean, not to go back too far, but all of this destruction of the dams that they're, they're going to do in California so they can let the salmon run free and the river should run free. And, you know, that's a combination of zealotry on the people who are proposing it that overwhelms any sense of reason and logic. That's what zealousness does. That's what fanaticism does. It's exactly what it does. It overwhelms reason and logic. And so that's that these people are in the throes of that. Are they being manipulated by others that want to use that for power? Sure. These people go along with them, get them to do more and more things, say, I am your leader, you know, I believe in these things, look what you've done. I mean, it's an old story. It just wears a different suit of clothes from every generation that it pops up. It's more dangerous this time because we have more ways to harm ourselves, Right. Uh, we can harm ourselves on a much greater scale. And we can oppress ourselves on a much greater scale if things go too far south on us. So what I wanted to bring up that I thought was 
emblematic of that was Victor Davis Hanson had said is that this plan to blow up these dams, you know, to let them run free, these four dams in California, where California is supposedly on a drought crisis over and over again, have no water. Well, that's because they've stopped importing water from where it is to where they need it. But nevertheless, what makes this especially ironic is that the funds they'll be using to deconstruct these dams are coming from a bond issue in California that uh, was authorized for water. It's a water bond. Now, when people pass that initiative, I believe that they were led to believe, or certainly reasonably thought, there would be a way to gather more water, to you know have more reservoirs, to divert water to where it was needed. They did not think that the money from that would be used to destroy the dams. So if there's not a tragic irony in that, then I don't know what one is. So I wanted to bring that up too. So so where does that leave us, you know? Well, I I wanted to look a little at this decivilization thing, because I like the term. I mean, of course, BDH has great turns of phrases there. And we've been saying from the beginning, where is this headed? You know, is it a Hunger Games scenario? I hate to use uh, pop references, but... Uh, this idea of a one or a few large centers of uh, the noblesse and everybody else supplying them at a much lower level of existence, it pops up all the time. It's all part of dystopian fiction that you see. And I think it pops up all the time because it really isn't hard to imagine, and it's happened before in history. I mean, the whole Middle Ages was like that. <laughs> and now, there were darker part of the Middle Ages. You know, historians, they don't like they don't like the Dark Ages. You know, it wasn't all that dark. They, people were doing things. Yeah, there were a few good things that happened. But if you look at the development of the few things that they point to over the time span uh, that they point to of hundreds of years, it's not exactly things a-popping in terms of technology and things changing. If you were a peasant in the 11th century living somewhere in Gaul, now France, you looked at a peasant in the 13th century living probably in the same area, their life probably hasn't changed a whole lot. The tools they're using, the things that it's not, there hasn't been an acceleration in any way. You compare that to what starts happening in other periods of time where there is more of a free market, where people are working in competitive situations for goods, you know, to manufacture goods, to get a market, to get people to buy their goods, to make things popular, right? Rather it be jewelry or wine or whatever it might be, the idea of appealing to the customer and the capitalist idea accelerates things a lot further. When you're simply a serf tending the ground that you may or may not even actually own, probably you own at the whim of the noble who's placed in charge of your region by a you know higher ranking person, be that a king or some earl appoints someone like a knight or someone over an area, you're working for them. The idea of you going out and working hard to come up with a, with a better potato or a, uh, a better wine uh, is uh, what for? Because it doesn't do you any good unless you have an especially enlightened uh, person in charge of your area that wants to bring you in on the deal. Your best bet is to just do what's required of you 
keep out of the way and hope that uh, he doesn't go to war with someone else so they can come riding through. And, of course, the first thing that happens in this, these times, it still happens today in warfare, is you want to destroy the means of production. So you get out there and you burn villages and crops and take animals and all that kind of stuff. So you hope that that doesn't happen. But beyond that, you, you're, your stake in this is pretty narrow. So that being the case, it explains a lot why there was no real acceleration in technology and goods and services during some of these times. I mean, the social order had to be changed. And even though it didn't change as much as you would think in the way it looked, it became more and more apparent that there became a rising middle class, a merchant class. Um, and that was the key to having an acceleration in technology and in the standard of living. As we said here before, in the grand scheme of things, having a what we call a middle class, we sort of throw that word around, but the idea that there is a transitional class that someone can move through or be in that can live reasonably well, can have a business or a means of income that is not given to them by someone above them based on their largesse or whatever they else might be, uh, creates a social mobility that most societies that have really a, a more ancient approach to things do not have. And those societies do not progress at a particularly fast rate. Sometimes they don't really progress at all. We've talked a few times about Russia. One of the things about Russia that's been very interesting, and there's some other examples too, is Russia has never really had, until recently, and I think you can argue that there's some there, had never really had a middle class. At the time of the Russian Revolution, the Communist Revolution, it was still that way. Russia was still a very clear two-tiered system. Various degrees of noblemen, a few layers of serfs and peasants. No transitional area. You could be in one, especially the bottom one, and the chances of moving up out of that, pretty difficult. And the top layer, fairly thin in terms of numbers, was able to constantly reach down for whatever that the bottom layers had produced for their own good not for the person they're taking it from, but for the good of the people taking it. Even though, for the most part, they had no real hand in creating the environment that the people were creating these goods and services in. Originally, and this sometimes took place, the idea in feudal Europe, and when you say feudalism, that really has a lot of different definitions, in, and it's not just one thing, or rather uh, one group of things. It kind of depends on where you're at exactly. It is, it's a broad category of a number of different ways, but it has certain commonalities. And the idea was that the people at the top of the social order usually were there by virtue of being related to people who had been there first. In other words, founders of the cities, you know, the first people there, and they scooped up all the good stuff and then they transferred it to their heirs. The idea that these people would stay 
competent <laughs> over time uh, was silly. But that's what way things were, just passed on from father to son in this, these times. And occasionally, uh, when you get a little later on, you get uh, people like Eleanor of Aquitaine and a lot of really powerful women in here. But nevertheless, it took place in that way. And, and the idea was that they had the strength of character and the time and place to rule over this area for the good of all. And what they promised was to defend it from outsiders. This was the role of the knight and his lord. Their first job, supposedly, was to protect people from marauding neighbors. One of the reasons that the the knight trained from, you know, early ages, very early ages, in warfare. The other one was so that his lord, the person whoever's above him, could call them up to service and defend the lands that that lord ruled over from outsiders. Now, this was supposed to be at least mainly or somewhat for the benefit of the serfs. It was just a little bit like the idea of a social contract, but, of course, it never really happened. They didn't ever really see the serfs as being part of any kind of agreement. They, for the most part, except for a few good ones, and there were a few good ones, just felt like they were mechanisms of some sort, some primitive mechanisms to create food and wealth and things like that. And so there's, once again, no middle class develops in that. Until the merchants, until someone realizes that I can take these goods from village A, where they're plentiful, to village B, some distance away, where they don't have these goods, but they have something different that someone in village C really wants, and I can make a profit by trading these goods from different places. Not something that the the lords of the realm ever thought about doing. So that's one of the ways you create these merchant classes. Never really happened in Russia. That's why these revolutions just cratered Russia, because people just got plain tired of it. They had enough incompetence coming out of these royal families, the czars, and a really rough time in a war, very bad leadership, and the Bolsheviks just seized upon that as a time to take over. And they came in with a bunch of rhetoric that they, you know, copied down from Karl Marx, and they uh, substituted themselves for the ruling class. Didn't really change anything. They just substituted themselves for the ruling class, called things different names, and then uh, really instituted some reforms uh, that were in in Maine, to try and indoctrinate people who might possibly be productive into their way of thinking so they could control things and operate the country with engineers and so forth who they chose educated and controlled. Once again, nobody's in the middle, really. Even these folks that have good jobs and are running the hydroelectric plants and so forth are just, you know, cogs in a wheel. They don't have any free will to take whatever knowledge and skills they have, profit from that, and do as our friend uh, Adam Smith would say, by doing so, raise the standard for everybody. Didn't happen. It was all planned economy. They had to use so many more resources, so many more time, and so much more coercion to create an economy that would you know, rival ours, even to a small extent, and a military that they spent almost all their money on. Uh, 
because it just didn't work any other way. That's why it was going to crash, and it did crash, and Ronald Reagan pushed it over the edge. Uh, but they weren't even, without World War II and the acquisition of the Eastern Bloc, as we like to call it now, and those countries to act as sort of a transfusion of goods, services, and knowledge into that whole area, the Soviet Union, they wouldn't last it as long as they did. They just sort of, you know, took the best out of those countries as well to sort of stagger along for a while and eventually couldn't go any longer. So when you when you look at civilization now, you see that there's a lot of folks in the United States that just have forgotten all of that. They're not interested in that. The Democrats will talk about the middle class. They don't seem to have any connection to it and could care less about it. And actually, if you press a lot of them, it sounds like, uh, they think it's just some, uh, the, the middle class, the suburban people, uh, are really just secretly, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, any one of a number of ists, right? Racist, homophobics, uh, you know, uh, misogynists, you know, you name it. They, they just have a very dim view of that, uh, because their whole philosophy comes from a downward push from academia which is then put a little twist on it by political power to make it convenient for the political powers to use that as a way to disrupt. And hopefully, once disruption takes place, nail together a coalition out of these disparate groups that they've used to disrupt what used to be the common sense piece of the country. Very interesting. So where does it head? Well, we see a lot of things, and we talk about them here, that seem to me that the culture and the, what shall I say, the traditions and the path of people in the country have just, it's been lost for many of them. They don't know where they're going. They, they've not been taught what is productive and what makes a successful life. They've just been taught that the reason they're not more successful is because somebody else is stopping them. That's what they're being taught. They're not being being really taught skills to be successful. They're being taught skills to be resentful because that plays into the political narrative and makes them allies of people who want to attack the other side who they see as political enemies. I mean, here's something that just emblematic of this. Uh, there's apparently some some movements in some of these states and in the actually in the military that... Uh, where the department, defense departments, and this is from the Federalist, I think. No, Spectator, Spectator, American Spectator, because uh, it's from a Federalist piece. That, uh, according to the military, the health systems is such that it parents can not necessarily, as I read this, have access to the medical records of children once they turn twelve. Medical person can be trusted, but parents cannot. I believe it says in this uh, article, which makes you feel that way. Uh, and this is the kind of issue that we have. And that's the message, is that, oh, well, you know, these children really know what they're doing, and we can help them sort out these problems in school. But their parents, well, they may not be as open or as enlightened as we are. Who can't see what this is all about? This is about, you know, the control of the educational system and trying to move the parent out of it as much as possible so that whatever they're teaching can be unchallenged. And, of course, this is also going to be the 
you know, the detransitioning, the transitioning, the, you know, the pronouns, all these things we talked about, I think, in the first segment and certainly in the second, too. I mean, it's interesting to talk about. So where does this go and how fast does it go? We know I like to quote uh, the line from uh, Sun Also Rises by Hemingway, where one of the characters asked the other, you know, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, well, gradually at first and then suddenly. Right. And it's kind of funny, but. That is sort of what you see in these trajectories in society. It's sort of a logarithmic thing. Now, we know that things can happen arithmetically, right? So one plus one plus two plus three, all that comes out to a sum, and it's linear. If you multiply something geometrically, things really get big fast, right? If it's, you know, you go from one to two, two to four, right? If you want to see how that works, take a penny and put on a... Uh, chessboard and then just double the pennies on each square you know go from one penny here two penny there four pennies on the next one you know 16 pennies on the next one you know you multiply it by itself and uh, you'll see that you can't really get to the end of the board and what logarithm logarithms are essentially a way to determine a rate or how you get to a specific Number, how, what, what is X that gets a specific number? But sort of the part that I think is interesting to us is, and I know there's math people out there that are going to say, this is what he's talking about. But is that, you know, you, it, it sort of represents an acceleration of the problem, right? If there is a problem, there's a certain amount of numerical weight that comes with it so that your curve begins to go to a certain direction down. And then it accelerates because it's the the rate of the burden, if you want to call it, accelerates. That's sort of what happens in, I think, in society. That's the same thing that happens in when people go bankrupt is that they start losing money and it's only a percentage, this percentage of the money they have. But as they lose more money, then their debt begins to take a higher and higher piece of their remaining funds. And so the trajectory that they have towards being bankrupt becomes larger. And I think this is what happens in societies, is that the more of these things, like from all directions, the schools, the you know, the dividing people up by tribes, the constant attacks, the making folks feel like that not only someone is has a prejudice against you, but they're they're an enemy and they're dangerous and all these things. These uh, increase that, and so. It's just like that debt. The larger it becomes, and there's only so amount here, you just lose your principal, and the piece eats more and more of it. At least that's what I was thinking about. You think about it. We'll talk next week.